Hello, and welcome back to the Historia Dramatica podcast. I'm your host, Willem Connor. Thank you very much for listening, as always. In the first episode of our series on the life and times of Girolamo Savonarola, we covered the friar's life from his birth in 1452 up to the year 1486, when he quietly departed the city of Florence to go to his new assignment in the town of Bologna. Savonarola came from a religious background and was greatly influenced in his beliefs by his puritanical grandfather, Michele Savonarola. The younger Savonarola's worldview was a bit of an anachronism. The period into which he was born, the early Renaissance, was a time of great social change. Generally, people were moving away from the simple and austere Christian piety of the previous era and embracing a new sort of worldview that can be broadly termed as humanism. From a young age, Savonarola despaired at the state of the world around him. He especially lamented the current state of the Catholic Church, which, in his conception, had largely abandoned its sacred duties. He deeply desired to see a return to the Christian piety of the medieval period. Despite his blistering criticisms of the Church, Savonarola nevertheless made the decision to enter religious life at the age of 23 when he left his hometown of Ferrara for the city of Bologna. There, he simply knocked on the door of the Friary of San Domenico and asked to be admitted into the Dominican Order. He was accepted. After taking his vows and completing his noviceship, Savonarola spent the next seven years in the monastery, devoting himself intensely to his studies of the Holy Scripture and the writings of the early Christian theologians, all the while steadily working his way up the ranks of the Covenant's hierarchy. In 1482, Savonarola was reassigned to the convent of San Marco in Florence. The city of Florence, widely regarded by historians as the birthplace of the Renaissance, essentially represented all the worldliness that Savonarola had come to despise. It was one of the richest cities of its age. Its wealthy residents spent exorbitant sums of money on the construction of massive and elaborate palazzos and cathedrals, as well as on paintings, books, fashion, and other material objects that characterized the Renaissance. Even the convent to which Savonarola had been reassigned was not free of these trappings of luxury. Far from being the austere and spartan environment that one might expect from a monastery, San Marco was well adorned with art made in the most recent fashion, had a library fully stocked with over 400 manuscripts, and was well provisioned with sumptuous quantities of food and wine. This was all done thanks to the patronage of the city's ruler, Lorenzo de' Medici. In this period, Florence was a republic and had been so since around the 12th century. However, despite the city's long history of republican tradition, in recent decades one family had come to dominate Florentine politics, the Medici. The Medici family were not the oldest or most venerable family in Florence, but they were the wealthiest by far. The Medici's vast wealth came from their bank, which had been established in 1397 and became immensely successful under the tutelage of Lorenzo's grandfather, Cosimo de' Medici. The Medici bank spread its influence far outside the walls of Florence and could count none other than the Pope as one of its clients. The wealth that the bank generated enabled Cosimo to create a vast network of patronage that in turn enabled him to wield a great deal of power in Florentine politics. When a rival faction arranged for Cosimo to be exiled from the city, he returned after only one year, and for the last two decades of his life, Cosimo essentially controlled all the levers of power in Florence from behind the scenes, making him the unofficial ruler of the Republic. Cosimo's grandson Lorenzo inherited his grandfather's immense fortune, wide-ranging patronage networks, and political influence, although he made less of an effort to maintain the Republican facade that Cosimo had. 
Lorenzo essentially ruled over Florence as though he were a prince, and he was not afraid to publicly flaunt his wealth and power. This is not to say that Lorenzo and the Medici family were the uncontested rulers of all of Florence. There were still many influential families within the city who resented them, as well as the masses of commoners who retained a strong sense of civic pride in Florence's republican institutions. The Medici's grasp on power was nearly eliminated in 1478 when the Pazzi family, a rival noble house, nearly succeeded in assassinating Lorenzo as he attended mass. The Pazzi conspiracy was ultimately foiled, but the house of Medici was shaken by the entire ordeal, as it proved that their hold over the city was by no means absolute. Meanwhile, Savonarola struggled to settle into his new position in Florence. He had been asked to deliver sermons to the citizens, but his Ferrari's accent and his nervous demeanor prevented him from making any lasting impression on them at the time. In 1486, Savonarola was mercifully reassigned from Florence back to Bologna, where he was to resume his work of instructing the order's novices. He remained in Bologna for an indeterminate amount of time before being reassigned once more, this time back to his hometown of Ferrara. Here, he was able to reconcile with his estranged mother at least somewhat. In the five years since he had first left home, Savonarola had written back home quite infrequently. Much had changed since then. Both his father and maternal uncle had died in the past two years. His mother, Elena, was struggling to make ends meet and to come up with a dowry for her two daughters of marrying age. It seems that Elena had wished for her son to help her out financially, but it was not to be. When he was inducted into the Dominican order, he took a vow of poverty. Savonarola did not remain in his hometown for very long, instead opting to use it as a sort of home base from where he could travel to other cities in order to preach. A letter written by Savonarola, dated January 25th, 1490, shed some light on the strained relationship between himself and his mother. Quote, My most beloved mother, do not grieve if I go so far from you and hold forth in various cities, because I am doing all this for the salvation of many souls, preaching, exhorting, confessing, teaching, and counseling. If I were to always remain in Ferrara, believe me, I would not reap so much fruit as I do elsewhere, because no religious, or very few, reaps the fruit of a holy life in his own land. Thus our Savior says a prophet is not accepted in his own land. So, since God has deigned to elect me with all my sins to such an office, you should be satisfied that I am in the vineyard of the Lord. If I were in my own country and tried to do what I do in other cities, I know they would say of me what Christ's countrymen said of him when he preached. Is this not the carpenter, the son of the carpenter, and the son of Mary? And they would not listen to him. And of me, they would say, isn't this master Girolamo the same one who committed the same sins that we do? Well, we know all about him. And they would not pay attention to what I had to say. But outside my home country, such things are not said about me. On the contrary, when I am about to leave, Men and women weep and greatly esteem my words. And so, honored mother, do not be sad about this, because the more I please God, the more my prayers for you will count with him. And do not think he has abandoned you to your tribulations. On the contrary, you should think that you have abandoned him rather than he you, and therefore your scourges should compel you to return to him." End quote. In the remainder of the letter, Savonarola continues to exhort his mother and sisters to ignore their worldly concerns and to dedicate their lives to God instead. Savonarola regarded such hardships as not only being just punishment from God for their sins, but also as a distraction from his all-important divine mission. 
Said divine mission primarily involved traveling to various towns and cities across northern Italy in order to preach his message. This message of his was decidedly apocalyptic in its character. Notably, in a sermon he delivered in the town of Brescia on November 30th, 1489, he prophesied, according to the testimony of an eyewitness, quote, God sent 24 elders through the world, and that one of them had come to him to tell him that he should say that a great scourge was coming to Italy, particularly to Brescia, and that he should call everyone to penitence, for fathers would see their own children killed, horribly and pitilessly torn apart in the streets, and all this would come to pass in the lifetime of the people that were living and present there. End quote. With the benefit of retrospect, this eyewitness claims that Savonarola's prophecy was indeed fulfilled 11 years later when the French army sacked the city and massacred the populace. Historians can then track Savonarola's movements from Brescia to Genoa in early 1490. It was here that he would have received word that he was being reassigned once more, this time back to San Marco in Florence. This was not done on the initiative of the Dominican leadership itself, though. Rather, Savonarola had been requested specifically to return to Florence by none other than Lorenzo the Magnificent himself. A closer look into the matter reveals that Lorenzo had been influenced in this decision by Pico della Mirandola, the famous, or rather infamous, Renaissance man, noble, and philosopher. Savonarola and Pico had crossed paths sometime between the years of 1483 and 1485. Savonarola seems to have made a rather favorable impression on Pico, who regarded him as a very pious and learned man. In the time since the two men would have seen each other, Pico had been involved in his fair share of misadventures. Pico's intellectual interests were unorthodox to say the very least, bordering on the heretical. He studied such subjects as magic and Islamic philosophy, but the subject that grasped his attention the most was the Kabbalah, an esoteric reading of Jewish philosophical thought. When Pico's writings got him into trouble with the Catholic Church, he proposed to defend his 900 theses against his detractors within the Curia. The Pope, however, would have none of it, and in August 1487 he issued a papal bull calling for his immediate arrest. In response, Pico fled the country for France, but was nevertheless apprehended and imprisoned there. Lorenzo the Magnificent interceded with the Pope on Pico's behalf, and after several entreaties, Pope Innocent VII had him released and allowed him to live in Florence under the watchful eye of Lorenzo. Although he had emerged from the whole ordeal mostly unscathed, the experience apparently had a rather profound effect on Pico. He became a sort of born-again Christian and devoted his intellectual activity to Christian theological matters. At roughly the same time, Lorenzo himself was undergoing a sort of spiritual crisis. Those who have studied his writings note that during this time, his poetry struck a more serious and thoughtful note than his earlier work. Therefore, it stands to reason that Lorenzo would have sent for Savonarola, a man with such an unimpeachable reputation, to guide him on this new religious journey. It has also been suggested that Lorenzo had other ulterior motives for inviting Savonarola to Florence. Lorenzo was growing wary of the Pope's intentions and tired of his constant meddling in Florence's internal affairs, but he did not wish to oppose him openly. He owed to the Pope the elevation of his second son, Giovanni, to the College of Cardinals, an appointment that brought the family prestige, political connections, and wealth. It seems that Lorenzo believed that Savonarola, with his constant criticism of the Church, could possibly serve as a counterweight to the Pope's influence. Savonarola's reappointment was confirmed by the Council in May 1490, and by the end of the month, Savonarola, who was in Bologna at the time, set out for Florence. 
according to a possibly apocryphal story, as he made the 50-mile journey through the Apennine Mountains, he collapsed from near exhaustion near the village of Pianoro. A passerby found Savonarola unconscious on the side of the road, and after he provided the exhausted friar with food and drink, accompanied him on the last 10 miles of his journey. When the pair parted ways near the gates of the city, the Good Samaritan told Savonarola, quote, Go and do the task which God has assigned to you in Florence, end quote. Savonarola never learned the name of his savior, but he would remember this compassion for the rest of his life. Savonarola arrived in Florence to take up his post at San Marco in June 1490. Upon his arrival, he returned to the familiar business of lecturing his fellow friars on philosophy and biblical texts. By August, he was delivering sermons to congregations of the general populace. On the first of that month, he gave the first in what would be a series of sermons. Owing to the tireless work that he had done throughout northern Italy in the past years, he had built up a powerful reputation as an effective orator. As a result, the audiences for his sermons now were much different than they had been during his first tenure in Florence. The crowd quickly filled the pews at the Church of San Marco, leaving many standing, while others, unable to gain entry altogether, observed him from the windows. This time, the audience was positively enraptured by what this man had to say. One person who watched him speak said, quote, Savonarola introduced almost a new way of speaking the word of God, that is, apostolically, without dividing the sermon. Not starting with a question, avoiding the singing of eloquent embellishments, his purpose was to expound something of the Old Testament and reintroduce the simplicity of the early church, end quote. Once more, Savonarola's preaching struck a rather apocalyptic chord. The subject that he fixated on, especially in this regard, was the Catholic Church itself. He prophesied the imminent reform that the Church was to undergo, and the fate that awaited those of its members who had led the people astray. Savonarola's sermons drew increasingly larger crowds, to the point that, when he was selected to deliver the Lenten sermons the following year, it was deemed necessary to relocate him to a larger venue the Cathedral of Santa Maria del Fiore, locally known as the Duomo. In advance of the Lenten sermons, a group of leading Florentine citizens approached Savonarola in order to deliver him a warning, perhaps at the behest of Lorenzo. His recent sermons had been somewhat concerning to them, and they advised him that it might be best to not speak so openly about such things. Savonarola's response was to exhort the men to do penance for their sins, and he told them to relay the message to Lorenzo that he should do the same. Needless to say, Savonarola did not take their advice to heart. On February 16th, 1491, Ash Wednesday, Savonarola mounted the pulpit of the cathedral to deliver his message. Author Paul Strathern describes the content of his sermon as follows, quote, His voice rang out beneath Brunelleschi's great dome as he spoke of the coming of a time such as no one has ever heard before. He launched into a long and explicit tirade against the city's evil denouncing sodomites who did not hide what they were, murderers who were filled with evil, gamblers and blasphemers, all of whom were abhorred by God. He denounced banking as usury and explained how the rich will suffer great affliction and condemned the unjust taxes which were grinding down the poor. He warned them that the time was nigh that they would be struck down by the sword. The city would no longer be known as Florence, but as that great den of iniquity." End quote. Savonarola's Lenten sermons, of which there would be over 50, attracted all elements of the Florentine population. 
While his preaching had alienated the ruling classes, his messages attacking the rich and powerful, quite understandably, did attract the attention of the common people. His words enraptured the masses, to the point that, when, on his sermon of March 20th, 1491, he claimed that God was speaking through his mouth, the people were inclined to believe him. It was around this time that Savonarola's detractors began to refer to him as the preacher of the desperate, and to his followers as the Wailers, or in Italian, the Piagnoni. For whatever reason, this appellation stuck both with the Piagnoni themselves and with their critics. Despite, or perhaps because of the content of his sermons, Savonarola remained so widely popular with the masses of Florence that the city's rulers could simply not elect to ignore him. As was the custom in Florence, on the Wednesday before Easter, the preacher of the Lenten sermons was to give a private sermon to the Gonfalonier, the mayor of the city, and the eight-man council which served under him, known as the Signoria. Savonarola did not think it prudent to tone down his rhetoric even when in the intimate presence of such powerful figures. A fragment of the sermon he delivered to them comes down to historians, quote, Everything that is good and everything that is evil in the city depends upon the man who rules it. He is responsible for all that is wrong with the city, for if he acted in the proper manner, the entire city would be sanctified. Tyrants never change their ways, and this is because they are arrogant, thrive on flattery, and refuse to return what they have stolen from the people. They leave everything in the hands of corrupt ministers, listen only to false praise, pay no attention to the poor, and care only about those who are wealthy. They require the poor peasants to labor ceaselessly for them without being paid proper wages. They expect their ministers to condone this. They corrupt the voters, employ criminal tax collectors, and thus make it even worse for the people." End quote. For Savonarola to criticize the city's leadership to his congregation was one thing, but for him to repeat such things directly to their faces was another matter entirely. Outraged, Lorenzo's closest confidence urged him to banish Savonarola from the city, and he would have been well within his rights to do so seeing as how it was at his own initiative that Savonarola had been invited to live in Florence under his own patronage in the first place, but Lorenzo refused to take such a drastic action, at least for the time being. The increasingly spiritually inclined Lorenzo regarded Savonarola as being genuinely holy, but what's more, he recognized the potentially disastrous backlash that such an action might receive from the public. Just three years prior, Lorenzo had been put in a very similar situation by a friar named Father Bernardino. In his sermons, Father Bernardino had attacked the wealthy and powerful, and, much like Savonarola, had gained a popular following among the city's populace. In response to his attacks on his person, Lorenzo had Father Bernardino exiled from the city, a move that proved to be highly unpopular, and that required no small amount of effort and resources to repair the damage done to his public reputation. Lorenzo had evidently learned his lesson, and he was not about to make the same mistake again. However, Lorenzo would not be simply content to sit back and allow Savonarola's potentially harmful influence to grow unchecked. Instead, he devised a scheme to undermine his legitimacy through more subtle means. Enter Friar Marino da Genazzano. As the superior of the local Augustinian order and the bearer of the title of the most celebrated preacher in Florence, Father Marino was perhaps the only figure in Florentine society that was in a real position to push back against Savonarola in any meaningful way. Strathern describes the difference between the two men as follows, quote, Where Savonarola hearkened back to a previous era, Father Marino was very much a man of the coming age, a preacher of considerable sophistication and intellect, end quote. Marino was Savonarola's opposite in many crucial ways. 
While Savonarola denounced the study of classical Greek and Roman texts as being essentially pagan in nature, Father Marino saw no contradiction between his study of such ancient knowledge and his faith. Lorenzo's close confidant, the poet Angelo Ambrogini, better known by his nickname Poliziano, wrote of Marino, quote, I have met Father Marino repeatedly at the villa and entered into confidential talks with him. I never knew a man at once more attractive and cautious. He neither repels by immoderate severity, nor deceives and leads astray by exaggerated indulgence. Many preachers think of themselves as masters over men's life and death. While they are abusing their power, they always look gloomy and weary men by setting up as judges of morals. But here is a man of moderation. In the pulpit he is a most severe censor, but when he descends from it he indulges in winning friendly discourse. I and my friend Pico have had many conversations with him, and nothing refreshes us after our literary labors so much as relaxation in his company. Lorenzo de' Medici, who understands men so well, shows how highly he esteems him, preferring a conversation with him to any other recreation. End quote. At some point after Savonarola had finished delivering his Lenten sermons, Lorenzo approached Father Marino and suggested to him that he should deliver a sermon that would discredit Savonarola to the public. He readily accepted this proposition and told Lorenzo that he would deliver the sermon on May 12th, Ascension Day, at the Church of San Spirito. With the time and place set, Father Marino's sermon was an event highly anticipated by the people of Florence. Savonarola himself remained unfazed, however. When he was informed of Father Marino's attempt to undermine him, he merely predicted that, quote, I shall wax and he shall wane, end quote. Soon enough, Ascension Day arrived, and on that day, a massive congregation filled the Church of San Spirito to its maximum capacity. Amongst those in attendance were both Poliziano and Pico della Mirandola, as well as Lorenzo the Magnificent himself. The sermon began well enough. Father Marino began by quoting from the Bible a reply of Jesus to his apostles. When the apostles asked Jesus what would come to pass in the future, he told them, quote, it is not for you to know the time nor the seasons, end quote. Father Marino interpreted this as evidence that it was simply impossible for any mortal man to foresee the future, and anyone who claimed to possess knowledge of the future was a charlatan. This thinly veiled criticism of Savonarola may have sufficed to discredit him by itself, but Father Marino took things a step further, launching into a scathing personal attack against Savonarola, denouncing him as a false prophet whose only aim was to spread sedition. Strathern describes the remainder of the sermon, quote, He soon became carried away with himself that he began mimicking Savonarola's brusque gestures and provincial accent before unleashing a stream of intemperate insults against him, calling him a worm, a snake, and a clown who was ignorant of the Bible, and an inept priest who was not even capable of conducting a mass in the proper Latin, end quote. This display was regarded by many in the audience as being entirely inappropriate, and now Lorenzo was beginning to harbor doubts about Father Mariano's effectiveness. The following Sunday, Savonarola gave his response in the form of his own sermon. He began by quoting the same verse of the Bible as his opponent. The sources do not elaborate on what exact arguments Savonarola employed, but they state that he proceeded to interpret the aforementioned verse in such a way that it lined up with his own doctrine. He then followed up with a personal attack against Father Marino. But unlike his opponent, Savonarola was able to maintain his temper, calmly questioning why this man had so suddenly turned against him. Days before he had agreed to preach against Savonarola, Father Marino had met with him in San Marco and conversed with him at length. The conversation was amicable and the two ostensibly parted on good terms. 
Why was it now that he was denouncing him in such vitriolic terms? This could only be the work of an outside party. Savonarola did not state it explicitly, but it was clear to most present that he was referencing his patron, Lorenzo the Magnificent. Sometime in the late spring, early summer of 1491, Savonarola was elected the prior of San Marco by his fellow friars. As was customary, the newly elected prior was expected to pay a visit to the benefactor of the covenant, in this case, Lorenzo de' Medici. Savonarola, however, refused to do this. When asked by his fellow friars why this was the case, he replied by inquiring as to whether it was to God or to the Medici, whom he owed his new position. When they replied that it was indeed God, Savonarola merely retreated back into his cell to continue his daily routine of prayer and fasting. Lorenzo the Magnificent was incensed at this slight, complaining, quote, A foreign friar has come to live in my house and does not deign to visit me, end quote. This time, Lorenzo did not resort to confrontation, however indirect, against Savonarola. Instead, he sought a conciliatory course of action. He began to attend Mass at San Marco regularly, partially in the hopes of encountering Savonarola in person. When this tactic failed to produce any results, Lorenzo had a series of increasingly expensive gifts sent to the convent, anonymously. Savonarola was not fooled, and he had each successive gift returned to the Palazzo Medici. Once during a sermon, he likened a good preacher to a loyal guard dog, which does not allow itself to be distracted by a bone or a piece of meat, but continues barking. The next day, the friars of San Marco awoke to find a sum of 300 gold florins in their public donation chest. A generous gift, to be sure, but Savonarola immediately knew that this was yet another gift from Lorenzo, and so he once again had it sent back to where it came from. Realizing that his immense fortune could not purchase Savonarola's loyalty or his friendship, Lorenzo, as a last resort, once again sent a delegation of five leading Florentine citizens to meet with Savonarola and to entreat him to change his ways lest he be banished from the city. Midway through their prepared spiel, Savonarola cut them off, saying, quote, I know that you have not come of your own free will, but have been sent by Lorenzo. Bid him to do penance for his sins, for the Lord is no respecter of persons, and does not spare even the princes of this earth from his judgment. Only people like you, who have wives and children, are afraid of banishment. I have no such fear, for if I did have to leave, the city would become nothing more to me than a speck of dust, compared to the rest of the world. I am not frightened. Let him do as he pleases. But let him realize this, although I am a mere stranger in this city, and he is the most powerful man within it, it is I who shall remain here, and he who will depart. He will be gone long before me." Savonarola's words astonished his listeners, as he went on to speak at length about the state of Florentine politics and Italian affairs more generally. He prophesied that great changes were soon to befall all of Italy, and that not only Lorenzo the Magnificent, but also Pope Innocent VII and King Ferrante I of Naples were all going to die soon. At this stage in his life, the dynamic and eminently charismatic Lorenzo de' Medici had been reduced by various illnesses into a shell of his former self, an irritable, hardly mobile 42-year-old invalid. The primary cause of Lorenzo's physical decline was gout, a disease that he had inherited from his father, and which made everyday movements unbearably painful for him. Contemporary sources also report that Lorenzo may have suffered from some sort of gastrointestinal disease. On the night of April 5th, 1492, as Lorenzo de' Medici was quickly nearing his last day on earth, a nearly disastrous event occurred which many Florentines interpreted as an ill omen. An apothecary named Luca Landucci, 
kept a diary at this time and described the incident in great detail, quote, At about 11 p.m., the lantern of the cupola of the Cathedral of Santa Maria del Fiore was struck by a thunderbolt and it was almost split in half. That is, one of the marble niches and many other pieces of marble on the side towards the door leading to the survey were taken off in a miraculous way. None of us had ever seen such an effect before. If it had happened when the sermon was being preached, for the sermon here is preached every morning with 15,000 people listening, it must of necessity killed hundreds of persons, but the Lord did not permit it. It was considered a great marvel, signifying some extraordinary event, especially as it had happened so suddenly, when the weather was calm and the sky was without cloud. End quote. Since the first day of that month, the dying Lorenzo de' Medici had retreated from his residence within the city to an estate at Correggi, on the outskirts of Florence, where he was when he was informed of the lightning strike at Santa Maria del Fiore. Lorenzo, who in his final days had turned more and more to superstition and religion for comfort, immediately interpreted this as an omen of his imminent demise. That same night, so the story goes, Savonarola lay awake in the night, restlessly thinking to no avail of a topic for the sermon that he was to preach the following day. That following day was the Feast of St. Lazarus, and given the state in which his patron was in, he thought it would be appropriate to recount the story of life triumphing over death. When he finally managed to sleep that night, he had a vivid dream of God's scourge upon mankind. He awoke repeating to himself, quote, Lo, the sword of the Lord, soon and swiftly, end quote. When he went to preach the next morning, he once again foretold of the coming disaster and incorporated this exact phrase into his sermon. This had a riveting effect upon the audience, who immediately associated it with the lightning strike the previous night. On the night of April 7th, Lorenzo lay on his deathbed. He invited his son Piero to his bedside and gave him a few last words of advice. Other visitors to Lorenzo at this time were Pico and Poliziano, both of whom kept near constant vigil in the room. As Lorenzo replayed his every waking moment in his mind, he became filled with existential dread and sent for a priest to administer to him the sacrament of Eucharist for one final time. This ultimately proved insufficient to relieve him of the remorse which weighed on his conscience. As Lorenzo retreated further and further into despair, he allowed his mind to wander, and his thoughts eventually turned to Savonarola. Lorenzo had doubted the sincerity of the priest who had administered his last rites, but of Savonarola he was reported to say, quote, I know no friar more honest than this one, end quote. A messenger was dispatched to Savonarola at San Marco. Upon receiving the news that Lorenzo had sent for him by name, Savonarola was the slightest bit perplexed, but after hearing of his steadily worsening conditions, he agreed to meet with the dying man. At long last, Lorenzo had finally received the face-to-face -face encounter with Savonarola that he had been seeking for the past two years. The sources are in disagreement as to how their interaction went, but almost all are certain that this meeting did in fact take place. According to the most popular version of the story, Savonarola began by asking Lorenzo if he still had faith in God. Lorenzo replied that he did. Savonarola then advised Lorenzo to live whatever days he had left, free of sin. Lorenzo replied that he would do this. Finally, Savonarola told Lorenzo to face his impending death with equanimity. Lorenzo said that nothing would be more pleasant if God had ordained his death to happen. At this, Savonarola turned to take his leave, but was stopped by Lorenzo, who asked the friar for one final blessing and to be absolved of all of his sins. Savonarola then informed Lorenzo that for his soul to be saved, three things were necessary. Firstly, he must reaffirm his belief in the one and true God. This Lorenzo was capable of doing without hesitation. 
Secondly, Savonarola said that Lorenzo must renounce his ill-gotten wealth, and to restore to the people all that he had wrongfully taken from them. At this, Lorenzo was somewhat taken aback, but he said that he would do his utmost to see this through, and would inform his heirs to do so as well. Savonarola's third and final condition was far more steep. He told Lorenzo that he must restore liberty to the people of Florence. In effect, Savonarola was asking Lorenzo to renounce his worldly power and to restore the city's long-declining republican institutions. At this, Lorenzo was left speechless. He refused to answer Savonarola one way or the other and merely turned his head away from him. Lorenzo de' Medici, also known as Lorenzo the Magnificent, died in the waning hours of April 8, 1492, at the age of 42. In the 23 years that he had ruled over Florence, Lorenzo had created somewhat of a mixed legacy for himself. No doubt the period of his rule had corresponded to a golden age in Florence in terms of the arts and material prosperity, but by the same token his rule had seen the further degeneration of the city's vaunted republican institutions. This was not an accident. Lorenzo did indeed harbor ambitions to make himself into a hereditary ruler, and to make the Medici family a ruling dynasty. The Florentine public regarded the death of Lorenzo the Magnificent with a mixture of grief and anxiety. Whatever was going to happen next in the wake of his loss, whether Florence would see a Republican revival, or if his son Piero would manage to defy expectations and prove to be a ruler as capable as his father, one thing was certain. The state of affairs in Florence, and indeed all of Italy, was about to change drastically. And it is on that note that I will end the narrative for today. With Savonarola's prediction of Lorenzo's death having come to pass, the end of an era had arrived. But you'll have to tune in again in two weeks to see what the future had in store for the city in which the Renaissance was born. In the meantime, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, or anything else of that nature, please feel free to email me at historiadramaticapod at gmail.com. Alternatively, it is possible to reach me via Twitter or Facebook, links to both of which can be found in this episode's description. I also strongly encourage you to check out the show's Patreon page and the eBay store for ways to help support the show financially. In any event, this has been the Historia Dramatica podcast. I'd like to thank you very much for listening, and I'm your host, Willem Connor, signing off.